You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, where it's all about helping you grow your Denver real estate portfolio. Here's your host, Chris Lopez. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. So today's episode is a continuation in our uh, book interview series. So a lot of you guys have heard Terrence Doyle as a guest co-host with me on the past several of those now he's in the hot seat. He's the guy being interviewed. So we got Terrence Doyle here. Terrence, how's it going? Excellent. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. And then as our guest co-host, we actually invited Derek Marlin. Since Terrence and Derek have a lot of similar backgrounds, you know, they both have done flipping. They both have done some apartment building syndication. So that would be great for Derek to kind of lead the discussion with De- uh, Terrence. Since Terrence and I talk a lot, I kind of want to hear Derek asked those questions as well. So we're going to go through, we are going to uh, go through Terrence's chapter in the book. So Derek, glad to have you here. Chris, thank you for having me. Terrence, thanks for letting me uh, quiz you. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. And before we awesome. get into the that stuff, we're, we're having some fun today too. Somehow, uh, one of us mentioned to have a couple drinks while we're doing this. So we are drinking some type of whiskey while we're drinking this. So yeah, that's a good idea. With all of us being in lockdown and COVID, we're all getting a little more bored and yeah, we need, need some happy hours. Spice so things up. Right. we're multitasking. Yeah, efficiency. All right. So Terrence... I, I read your chapter like half hour before we started recording this and um, hit some stuff and things have some changed on here. That's right. Um, so I kind of want to read the first thing. I'll let you take it over, Derek. Yeah. You said um, your goal for 2019 were close on two, three to five million dollar multifamily buildings. Yes. I don't know what you did in 2019, but I know what you did in 2020. Yeah. And it seems like you're blown out of the water. 2019. Yeah. This was just as I was transitioning, Derek. We've talked a lot about this from my single family focus in Denver to more multifamily. And yeah, so I think when I was brainstorming for, you know, my goals in 2019, I really wanted to try and go bigger, do fewer deals, but larger transactions. And yeah, we were able to, we were successful and able to do that. We had a lot of challenges, failed and made a bunch of mistakes, but we did, we did check that box. Yeah. Well, and I'll piggyback off that. And it was, yeah, you put down two deals of three to five million. And it sounds like you did nine that total far more than that. What would you say was the time when you hit that sweet spot and knew that you were going to go way over that? And was that an intentional thing? Or was that, we'll lean back on kind of like our athletic background. Did you feel like you were in the flow and things just kind of kept coming your way? Or what was that point of inflection yeah. where you're like, holy crap, we're going to blow this out of the water? I wish I was more like you. I think when we were talking during your chapters, you had a, you have, you seem to have uh, dialed in a better feel for what your max is in terms of capacity. And I think that's something that I haven't learned uh, to date. And so part of it was just, we got going, we got some momentum. And then the next deal just looked, it, it was like, it was kind of like a thing, I, we have to do this deal type thing. It was like, this is a deal we have to do. If we put in this much work into building relationships and having conversations with brokers, when they bring me a deal that fits my box or even is better than what we are looking for, yeah. I kind of feel a sense of obligation to do the deal, even if maybe I don't have the bandwidth in terms of, and most of the time when I'm talking about bandwidth, it's just construction, yeah. either to manage the construction or the crews. And so I, and, and with multifamily, you can do that a little bit more because you have cash flow coming in. So I think in terms of single family, you get hurt a little bit more if a property's sitting and it's vacant and you're just right. accumulating interest and fees and overhead. But with multifamily, you tend to have a little bit more of an out because it's, I, you know, the justification is, well, it's cash flowing. Yeah. So I'll buy it. Yeah. That helps. So I'm not saying that that, you know, I, when I'm talking to other people that are getting started, I definitely don't recommend that. Sure. I think because of, you know, my personality and I mean, my tendencies and the relationships I've built, I tend to want to err on the side of being too aggressive, mm-hmm. maybe having too many properties going than not having enough to do. Yeah. And I'm not, that's definitely not always a good thing, but uh, that's kind of been my default mistake. Yeah, but I don't think that's a bad thing because I think you can, as long as you have your pipeline full, then that's, you're right, the good problem to have it is to figure out, oh my gosh, we have to do this deal. I can figure out contracting. I think you're to the great point now where you can figure out the money side of things too, whether you need it to raise funds or not. I think that's the hardest part is people finding good deals. And everybody says, if you can find a good deal, we'll figure something out to do with it. So, I mean, good problem to have, but that's exciting. You were able to turn that corner and just keep going and plow ahead and find a way to make it work. Yeah. It's kind of like when you're talking about Cincinnati, you know, you spend all this time building relationships, trying to fill the pipeline. And then once you have it, just because it gets too busy, you don't want to like shut it off, you know? And so that's kind of where I was at. I think 2017, 18, you know, I was, just meeting with people and talking about, hey, hypothetically, in the next year, we're probably going to shut down single family. I really want to focus on multifamily. And then I think it just kind of compounded to the effect, you know, and really paid off in 2019, 
we're able to do a bunch of deals in our space, you know, in the box that we had drawn up for multifamily. And in 2020, it's thankfully continued. And um, so, yeah, I, I definitely feel like the the uh, the medium for me is, you know, I got to find, you know, the balance between, you know, doing really good deals and then still being able to say, hey, this one, we're just too busy. And what I've done recently actually is just put out due di- is delay due diligence and and then financing and with and because of the pandemic i think you know there's some deals we've delayed due to financing appraisal third party you know other reports we've had to do phase ones and a lot of that stuff's pushed closing back 60 90 days which has really helped yeah, that's good. the uh, the rhythm we're in in terms of construction and property management so i think that's one of the things i learned is coming from single family i used to just be close quick really fast due diligence and it was kind of a speed game and with multifamily i've been able to slow it down Say, hey, instead of seven or 14-day due diligence, give me 45. Right. Hey, you know what? We need a 30-day We need a 30-day um, extension on this for whatever reason. And that's really helped out as well, being able to, you know, blo- you know, stagger everything based on just having longer due diligence and longer close times. Well, and talk a little bit about, I think that'd be a cool, interesting perspective to get from those looking to get into multifamilies that, you know, you're right, you and I, and I still do a lot of single-family flips. You almost have to jump on off-market opportunities. It seems to be so incredibly challenging to find good deals and everything leads towards off-market. We still do a lot of on-market stuff, which I know you did when you were doing single families. Maybe talk a little bit about when you go into the multifamily space, it's a nice transition, or at least what we found out of state, and it's been a little while since I've done it in-state, of working with more traditional brokers, not feeling like you have to make a decision that second, having your right a, you know, 60 to 120, maybe 150 day runway, um, getting pocket listings of good relationships like you talked about. So talk a little bit about that nice transition that we saw that I'm sure you're probably reaping the benefits of instead of, oh my gosh, here's an off-market opportunity. I got to buy the house immediately. And you're just frantically trying to do that. Can you talk a little bit about your your transition of multifamily? Yeah, it's so true. You know, when we started in 2008, we literally had to make a decision in five minutes at the public trustee sale. You know, you're at the, you're at the, you're, you're in the courtroom, there's 10 other people bidding and you have to decide, am I going to go up 5,000, go up 10,000, or are we just going to bow out? Yep. And you spent a week preparing, you know, running comps, driving the property, getting the cash to bring the cashier's check. So I think coming from that, you know, that was kind of my training 2008 to 14 was making decisions literally in five to 10 minutes. And then you transition to wholesalers and, brokers on the residential side, maybe you have three days, right? So that felt like an eternity. And then going from single family flips to multifamily. Yeah. I mean, there's some deals that, like you said, we've been able, we've been under contract for 120 plus days. And what I've learned from that is you just get to, you get to gather much more information, which just makes you better at executing the business plan. Yeah. So it's actually been great. You know, even though I never went into a deal thinking, okay, I'm going to try and get 120 days just with the natural delays we've had this year because of everything going on nationally and globally with with the health crisis we've we've been held to have so much more time to drive by the property more to understand the tenant class there to understand you know their pay, payment habits understand the maintenance issues um, we've done phase one reports which is the first time we've done that now that we're taking on institutional investors requires more due diligence and you know more just um, granular you know yeah. checking boxes you know and what that's done even though if it was just my own capital, I wouldn't do it because I wouldn't want to spend the five or 10 grand that it takes to do those tests. What it's done is just made me a much more knowledgeable about the area, about, you know, soils, environmental, and about that specific lot and the history of it. So it's been, it's only added, I think, to my acumen and the knowledge I have of the market and understanding the progression of, of how lots go from being entitled and then building and then different permits. And those are all the things you learn on a phase one, which, mm-hmm. you know, when you're doing single family, you don't even know what a phase one is, you know? And so, and you don't need to, you know? And so I think those are things that I've really enjoyed, even though it's, you know, sometimes reading 80 to 100 page documents is obviously a snooze fest, yeah. but it is really good, you know, for people that want to grow and just always learning and, and uh, yeah, just picking up new, new tools of the trade. So I, I would say that, you know, speed is normally what our advantage was in single family is we could close really quickly with the capital. We could make decisions really quickly. And I could basically walk into a property and probably like you in like 20, 30 minutes, be like, oh yeah, this is a deal, you know? And I may be within 10 to 20% of the budget I had in my head, but it didn't really matter as long as we got our number. And in multifamily, it's been a complete change, which I think is good. It's just, it's a less likely chance to make a mistake. 
you know, because you're because of the time. Yeah, and and I think an interesting thing that m- would be curious to look at what you've done this year and what you think you'll do in the future too is so you're originally doing that you know one to two million dollar acquisition price. Seems like you've definitely jumped upstream and are doing bigger stuff. Um, do you find in Denver what's the sweet spot, and are you trying to stay under this radar of where other institutions are competing with you? Yeah. Of your purchase price of let's say five million dollars is your ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you mentioned earlier, you want to do less deals, but larger and, and hopefully more profitable deals. Right. Do you have kind of a sweet spot of where you've been leading in 2020 and where you think you'll go in 2021 of purchase price by staying under institutional, above kind of that mom and pop and where that yeah. has been successful for you? Yeah, we think a lot about that. And I think it's it's a scale that's definitely moving. You know, I think if you look at single family, you know, a couple years ago, we used to say, you know, the sweet spot was really being under like 400,000, you know, under 400,000 is a sweet spot. You know, we can, we know we can sell it under 500. And I even think in single family, that's probably moved to maybe, you know, under 600 or, you know, it's probably just because of prices have gone up and capital's gotten so much cheaper, yep. right? So then naturally more people can qualify and can afford that. And hard money lending's gotten so much easier. And there's all these national lenders now and they're funding 90% of purchase and 100% of construction. So now you can have much less capital and buy that deal in the five and sixes, whereas before, you know, you, maybe there was less competition. And I think it's the same thing with multifamily that I've seen. You know, back in the day, if we were going to close in cash and it was over a million, there wasn't many people that could move as quick as us as far as making a decision and due diligence and closing uh, because we wouldn't have to get an appraisal. Yeah, nice. Um, just because of the condition of the property and the rents, it w- probably wouldn't qualify for some of the prices we were paying. But I think even that now has changed to where there's a lot of people willing to close with cash or with hard money in, in the million-dollar range. And so I think we're probably more, you know, I'd say our competitive advantage among mom and pops is probably like $2 million, okay. you know, two to three. And then institutions are most likely not looking at a deal under $10 bucks. Nice. Okay. I think there's like family offices and wealthy, you know, private individuals, but they're most of those guys, because of the amount of capital they have to deploy, under $10 million just doesn't move the needle for them. And so I think, you know, if we play in that space where we're, above the price that most mom and pops can pay for something cash and move quickly, unlike, let's say, a fourplex, sixplex, tenplex. And we do a lot of those. Um, So I'd say between a a million and a half, two million, you know, I think that's a little bit more than most people are able to come up with in 30 days. And then I would say, you know, under 10 million, we're able to, you know, there's not, you know, when when I've asked brokers that question of like, hey, where is the sweet spot for guys like me? How many other buyers am I competing with, you know, in the $5 million range where it's, you know, a really low cap rate going in, a ton of CapEx, really low rents, a bunch of work, and a tenant class most people don't want to deal with. How many people are looking at? And they've told me anywhere from like three to six. Okay. So that's, so that's nice. Yeah. That's a nice. That's good. Three to six in the Denver market with a couple of the brokers that we work with. And obviously we try and stay with local brokers, not the national guys. And we've had more success with that. Smart. So I'm sure the national guys would say they have 10 guys like me, but we don't, we're not really, those aren't the guys that I'm really trying to go deep with. Yep. But um, yeah, so that's been, I don't know, what would you say? I mean, you, you're, Chris, you're dealing with a lot of smaller multis now. I mean, would you think that a million and a half to two million, if you're closing quickly, if the property want to praise, is there, would you say there's an advantage? Yeah. I mean, I think there is. I mean, just because of exactly what you said, especially a lot of people when you go from that, you know, four unit residential to that five unit commercial, you know, that, that's a, just a big bridge to, right. to go over and there's, you know, everything changes. So I saw people staying under, you know, four units and that five, fifth unit range is like the divide on things. Right. So Because you can't get a residential loan at yeah, that point. Yeah. Just, you know, everything the, changes, the terms changes, different underwriting, different lending, all that stuff. And yeah. a lot, for a lot of people I've noticed for investors, that's just, they're very comfortable with that range. Right. In the bigger world, it's just, it's a different game to play. Yeah, that's interesting. So that's so, a good point. Yeah. yeah. So the number of units, yeah, and the price point. Helps. Yeah. So I, I got to take a time out here. So so Joe Massey's here in the studio and we have to, we have to say thank you, Joe, for the yeah, whiskey. For yeah, the, this is for, uh, libation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank I you. I don't have a uh, microphone, so hopefully they can hear me. Yeah. yeah. I don't think they can. They might be able to. But, uh, yeah, grab, grab that microphone and say hi. So what we're doing, Joe, uh, if you want whiskey or vodka, there it is as well. Perfect. Uh, so we That's texted really Joe like, <laughs> we, yeah. we texted Joe five minutes for the podcast. Hey, can we come down and raid your bar? He's like, sure. Then he FaceTimes us and was a gracious host. So, Joe, we're interviewing, uh, Derek and I are interviewing Terrence right now on his transition from, you know, talking about his goals in his book. And uh, we're just talking about the, 
kind of like Terrence is finding the two to ten million dollar sweet spot for things right there. I love it. Well, I'm just right. excited to be here and listen, hang out, have a few uh, free drinks, you know, from this mysterious bar <laughs> that you guys right. found yes. somewhere yeah, in the mystery office. Mystery bar. Um, but no, it's uh, you're doing a great job, man. I love seeing what you're doing. Love hearing everything. I loved your chapter in the book. Um, so I'm just gonna hang out and listen. But just wanted to say hi. Thanks, Joe. Well, let's t- let's talk about your venture into building out your own property management company. Yeah. And and what I love is that we've also gotten some of the same par- parallels of you've done that in Des Moines. You ran your property management company the way that you wanted to. You built it out. You went the Denver route, but then you pivoted mm-hmm. um, and realized that it just didn't fit your model. Talk about kind of the same inflection point of, was there a specific occurrence where you said, that's it, I'm out, uh, you know, something that was super frustrating that can sometimes yeah. happen? Or was it a couple of things that just said, you know what, this just isn't worth it. We want to go back to third party. Where do you spend your most efficient use of time and talk about that in-house versus out-of-house? Because, you know, a lot of people, yeah. want, you know, think that's the route to go and sometimes it isn't, sometimes it isn't. Yeah, and I think part of being an entrepreneur in real estate or any industry is you got to be willing to fail quickly, yep. you know, just realize, hey, this isn't working and then pivot and you're going to try, you know, I'm just an idea guy. So I'm going to, you're going to try a bunch of things throughout the course of a year or your career that are not going to work, but it's going to help you get closer to the right answer. Yep. And so, and I think just being okay with failing, like, hey, that we tried it. It didn't work out. Yeah. And so as we were scaling, you know, and I think part of what happened in Des Moines and, you know, for people that haven't heard, you know, we lost, I think hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't know the exact number, but it was really, a Really, it was that, that big of a oh, Yeah, I remember in 2017, we had 120 doors and we were getting, you know, he was depositing, uh, the company that we were working with in Des Moines was depositing like on average, like 18 to $20,000 a month. Oh. And there was just massive oh, vacancy. Wow. The yeah. people he was putting in, you know, weren't paying or there was just delinquency, vacancy, the maintenance, mm-hmm. you know, would be just like, insane. You know, they, I think one month we had like $36,000 in maintenance on a hundred and some door. I mean, it was out of control. And I remember, and I would fly, and at this time, this was before I had kids. Yep. We, I was flying back to Des Moines like every other week and I'd be sitting there going through this document and be like, how did you, how did you approve this? And what I realized, which was a painful realization, was that no one is going to care about my properties as much as I am. So, He's, you know, someone else, just because there's fires and tenants are calling and they're having issues, they're going to pay whatever they have to in the middle of the night just to get it solved so their phone stops to ring, right, to put out the fire. And I don't actually blame him for that. You know, I, yeah, I get it. Degree. Yeah, to a degree, sure. Um, I mean, he has a fiduciary responsibility to do, I think, better, but I get it. And so what I, you know, and so even though I'm going to be anal about every single dollar and just, and that's what I tell, every single dollar matters at the, at, over the course of a month and a year and several years, I mean, those hundred dollar increases in maintenance add up to thousands and thousands of dollars. And the same thing with delinquency and the same thing with vacancy. Those those $700 a month units that sit vacant for two or three months over the course of hundreds of properties and multiple years is hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so that's where I get that number is we lost so much money just incrementally yeah. and what it compounded to. And so I just, just a light bulb went off and said, if I'm going to expect to get a great return on this investment, I'm going to have to do it myself. I can't expect, it's like negligent of me and almost ignorant of me to think that someone else is going to manage it as closely as I am. Yep. I can't expect them to grind over every dollar the way I do because it's my money, not his. Yep. And his. And really, he's trying to run his own business profitably. And that doesn't mean he's going to spend Other 30 hours interviewing plumbers for me, you know? And uh, and so, but even though that's what, that was my expectation. So part of it was just being a property manager, you know, is just be, when you're a landlord yep. and- you realize all the expenses that go into it you, and you have enough doors and you want to do it full-time like I was and you want to do it grow aggressively, you just have to make a decision. Am I going to be okay with someone not caring as much as me or do I want to just do it myself and then I just blame myself? And that was the decision we made in Des Moines. And so then in Denver, I was, you know, I made, you know, we were like, okay, it's a no-brainer. We're just going to do it ourselves. Yep. What I didn't realize is that there has to be economies of scale. Right. You have to have a certain number of doors for it to make sense to bring it in-house. And so what we realized in 2017 and 18 was that if you're playing in the, in the 50 to 150 door range, it doesn't really make sense on the expense side, even though we were having higher occupancy and much lower overhead uh, on a per door basis than I would have third party. It, we were net net probably just breaking even based on having all these people in house. Okay. And a lot more headache for you too. Yeah, think, more to right? manage. A lot more headaches, a lot more so calls. So what do you think the, yeah. like, what's the tipping point? There's a lot of different opinions on that. My opinion is currently, as I sit here today in August of 2020, I would say <laughs> 250 units is where I'm at. And once we get to 250 in Denver, in Denver okay. yep. we'll bring it in-house and we'll be able to, because I really want to hire A players, you know? Yeah. And I think to do that, to justify that expense, I think you got to be over 250. And so 
what we've done in Denver is find a really good third party that cares enough, you know, maybe not as much as me, but they care really close to that. And we've been able to align interest as much as possible regarding leasing and vacancy and and really aligning interest on NOI. So the higher the NOI, the, you know, there's bonuses and certain metrics for, you know, the company to trigger. And I think that that's as close as it's going to get for a third party to, you know, for me to feel like it's yeah. my own company. So you Fair give your, your PM a little bit of like performance bonus based. Is that what I heard? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm leasing up. Yeah, we're doing, we have a new building that's vacant right now and there we set a goal of, hey, sign this many leases in 30 days and there's a bonus for the team and and then on on the uh, Is that on the, the monthly the overhead. Fourplex? That's Wyandotte. We filled yeah. the fourplex actually in one weekend. Really? Yeah. yeah okay. Harlan oh, so you're, you're filling, you'll fill yeah. Wyandotte now? Yeah, now okay. we're going to fill Wyandotte. Yeah, yeah, so that's what I've found and I'm, like I said, we're still learning. We're growing. In a year, I could have a different answer. Sure. But as I say right now, I think that's to date everything that I've learned. That's kind of where where I land. I want to I want to do a quick yeah. time because yeah. we just mentioned the apartment building on yeah. on Wyandotte, which yeah. is the Highlands. So what? Two weeks ago, we just recorded a bigger pockets ride along show with that. That's right. So sometime right when this podcast releases, that will be released as well. So yeah, be on the lookout for the bigger pockets channel for and for good. We'll link to it. Possibly the most painful project I've ever done, but I'm really <laughs> uh, I learned a lot and I'm really thankful for being done and and it actually turned out a lot better it turned out great but i remember between scenes there is definitely some some cursing and they're like oh yeah no 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 we're not not talking about that too many bad memories yeah (laughs) we got it done but psd from that property (laughs) uh yeah it's been painful well what i like to hear is that you're going i shouldn't say against but a little counterintuitive to conventional wisdom from time to time is that we all a lot of people listen to similar podcasts do similar types of research studying but there's a i think a big component of just doing it yourself and then deciding that, yeah, I think it makes sense to bonus out a leasing agent to yeah. make this deal work. Or you, I think that's the takeaway for the, our audience is that you don't have to do things the exact same as other people. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, when we moved to Cincinnati, they had all these residents that they just inherently couldn't get out. Right. And so we said, well, let's just give them a full security deposit back and a security deposit bonus to get them out of our unit. And the property manager looked at me like I had three heads. Right. It's like, just like you said, yeah. little amounts of money add up. And if I'm giving that guy or woman back a $700 deposit plus a $300 bonus, $1,000 makes a huge difference in the world today. Yeah. When I'm renting that apartment for six or 700 bucks, let's turn it and let's rent it for $1,000. And in two months, we've made our money back. I love how you and look you have a better the, tenant in there, yeah. You're right. You have the, the tenant that you're picking, but I love how you think about it differently that we don't all have to go down this same path and you can veer. And sometimes it's almost, you know, too easy for us to realize that and people just don't pull the trigger. So I think that's a really cool thing that you're doing of looking at it differently. Yeah, the herd mentality, you know, this is yes. kind of one of my, not to go down a rabbit hole, yeah, but yeah. just uh, contrarian as far as even like higher education, you know, I just think the herd is always going to say to go where they're comfortable and where they're used to going, but that doesn't mean that's always the right answer. And you may try and go the opposite way and realize, hey, there's a reason why everyone's going the other way. I need to get back on on that track. Yeah. Or you may find out that it's yeah. way beneficial to go, you know, to go the opposite way of the herd. And I just think being in real estate, it's one of the great things is there's no, there are some quote unquote book right answers, yes. but you can make your own right answer, you know, just depending on where you're at, uh, your personal situation, your financial situation, the market. And there's so many ways to kind of make your own, create your own path and, and add value and, and, uh, add margin in so many different ways. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, one of the things that we enjoy doing. Yeah. Well, and I think that that goes back to what Chris originally brought up to us is we all wrote a chapter in this book and then COVID hit and no, it was published before that. And so what I would love to hear a little bit more about is we're kind of doing this recap. How have you weathered, let's call it the first, if we go to a sports analogy, the first inning or two of COVID and some of the pivots that you may have made. And now I feel like we're maybe in the second or the third inning. Are you continuing to go down the road of those pivots or are you already seeing dang, maybe we actually want to pivot again, whether that's leaning back towards your original business model that you set out in the beginning of 2020, or it's a third route. Talk a little bit about those pivots and either re-pivots or scrapping the whole damn thing and doing something different. Uh, What's also interesting is that in 2019, my previous business partner, who's still a close friend of mine, and we have known each other since college, you know, he just made a life decision and said he wanted to spend more time with his family and and had made enough money and just really didn't want to be in the day-to-day, you know, hand-to-hand combat of, uh, of, of real estate that we're in. And so, you know, we were just in th- the third month of where I had hired basically three people to replace him. You know, he handled basically all the back office, bookkeeping, accounting. Uh, he was a licensed realtor. I mean, he handled a lot. And so, you know, I'm in month three of this transition 
three and a half months, and then, you know, everything shuts down. And so it was, and most of the people that we had hired were really good at what they were doing, but they didn't totally understand our model. Right. Right. Which is, you can be in real estate for 20 years and get into like value add construction, leasing, and aggressive growth and be, you know, kind of be deer in the headlights a little bit. And so it was really interesting. I mean, it was super challenging. And so I think that um, looking back on it now, it made us a lot stronger, but in the middle of it, you know, we were, the thing, the, the, the two or three things I think that we learned were that we have to be much more disciplined about the location. Yeah. You know, the properties that we purchased in Denver in core neighborhoods, let's call it like we were talking about earlier, like a Congress park, yeah. a Cheeseman park, maybe West Colfax, you know, within five minutes of downtown areas that are really developing that have good walkability where there's a lot of things to do around there. Um, you know, I just think, close to transportation, you know, public transportation, things like that, parks, you know, those areas did really well. I mean, I think we finished two or three projects in April that leased up in two or three weekends nice. at market rents, you know, so that was great. And we had other properties in other parts of the city that we were not as disciplined in the locations. And those properties are the ones that had a lot of vacancy, a lot of delinquency, and a lot of the tenants that were having issues making rent. Mm -hmm. And so coming out of you know, because I think the last four or five years, it almost hasn't really mattered where you bought in Denver. If you did a renovation, you were going to get, you were going to fill it up really quickly and you were going to get your pro forma rents, if not more, you know? And so March, April, May, that was not the case. So it's just a great, it's a great reminder that you still have to stick to the fundamentals and be disciplined and be disciplined in location, in your underwriting, be really conservative. And I think we've we tend to be conservative anyway with rents, but what sure. we haven't been disciplined in, and I think same thing came from flipping. I think you could basically buy a property almost anywhere and sell it in Denver. And so we thought the same thing with, with rentals. And, uh, and obviously that has not proven to be the case. And so moving forward, you know, we've really become more disciplined as far as really location specific mm -hmm. and, uh, and how we underwrite that. And so, you know, that's good. I mean, I think before that, we would just almost do a deal if the numbers made sense anywhere. And now that's, that's not the case. So that's been, that's been one really good thing. And I, and I just think whenever you go through challenging times with a team, a group of people, it either makes, it, you kind of see what you're made of and it makes the team hopefully a lot stronger. Yeah. Or you get to see who's not going to make it and it weeds out you know, the people that just aren't part, shouldn't be part of, you know, you're, this is a good word, you know, culture is yeah. a big thing that we both talk about. And I think that was a good thing is we were able to see, okay, who's really going to fit this company culture long-term and who just isn't, isn't made for what we're doing. And, and the, and we really defined our culture, I think, through, through the, through March, sure. you know, the, the pandemic. And yep. we came up with basically just high integrity, right? So we want people that are trustworthy. We can, trust and count on. Mm -hmm. Did you just make like a list of, the, of what you're yeah, looking for? we put for? it up in the office. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, just, it was three things. It was really simple. It was high integrity. So people that are honest, yeah. that we can trust, we can count on. High energy. Yep. And high, high energy is kind of like capability too. Like, are people capable? Do they enjoy what they're doing? Are they passionate? You know, they bring good energy. And then high intellect. Are people, are they, are they talented? Can we, you know, can we, are they, can they do the job? Yeah, you know? figure something out. Can it they sounds figure like out? a lot, if you get the right person, you can train them the specifics of what you want, but you're looking for the, you know, good, good mindset, the big picture, the team player, high integrity. Yeah, you can teach some nuance what you're doing, right? 100%, you can yeah. put them in a room and they'll, and they'll figure it out. And I do think that, you know, you know, we're kind of three or four months out of the heat of it. And I think we've got, you know, I, we've got those kind of people on the bus right now and it's been really good and it's been awesome to see Everyone's kind of come together. No one, you know, as you know, running a small organization, we all wear like 20 hats, you know? So this whole thing of like, that's not my job, that just doesn't ever, you know, that you can't ever even think that yeah, yeah. to be Don't on our say team. That you, know, like, can't, you can't ever yeah. even like cross your mind. <laughs> right. Oh, that's right. not, what are you talking about? That's not my job. It's like, yeah. no, no, no. This is all, of, this is everybody's <laughs> job, you yeah. know? And so I'm thankful that we've been able to find those kind of people. And, uh, you know, they're just passionate, you know, just like I said, high integrity, high intellect, and uh, high energy. High energy, high intellect, high integrity. Well, and I think that goes back to something. All three of us have talked about this probably at some point or another of, you know, the um, E-Myth Revisited book of working on your business and not in your business as much. Did you ever have a point to, and this is something I've always kind of asked everybody in these informal conversations, is taking time that COVID gave us to, to step back and reflect a little bit and working on your business versus in your business. And I think that really folds well into hiring 
and mm-hmm. making sure you hire people with the right values. Maybe talk a little bit about when you were making those decisions. And I think there's a lot of people out there that were all like us at some point of going from a, a one-man band to your first hire, which is obviously super important. Yeah. But then if you're making your 10th or your 20th hire, you're right. You got to find people that can do a ton of the work mm-hmm. and be very skilled. But if they don't fit your culture, yeah. then you're probably just treading water to some degree or or they might leave. And how do we find vested employees? Yeah. Talk a little bit about your next round. I know you and I had talked yeah. about before you made that jump. Um, but you just went over those three different core values. Has sounds like that's paid off, and maybe a little bit about how that's giving you hopefully a strategic advantage to keep people on board versus just okay, good resume, technically sound. Right. I can train them and then kind of have them do their thing. I think that's what a lot of people look at as great. They're self sufficient, but that's maybe not the best route. Tell yeah. us a little bit about your organization and how that works. Yeah, I think it came from just hiring the wrong people. Oh, and that's yeah, how I true. got to those three. I think, you know, those when, are the best learning. When I, yeah. learn when I looked back there. at it, yes. you know, my uh, CFO who's been on the podcast before yeah. now is, uh, he comes from the military. He's actually a Navy SEAL for 10 years and I just really respect him. And, you know, him and I would just sit down and say, hey, why did this not work out with this person? What did, what were the things that we did not enjoy or didn't fit? You know, right. we would be with them. And then we'd say, oh, this, they didn't have this or they weren't this. And then we'd say, okay, what is it that we're looking for? And we just, and I think, you know, reading the book Traction, which you gave me, um, and just listening to podcasts and talking to other entrepreneurs like yourself, like Chris, like Joe, and just a lot of people that have bigger staffs. Because I, I would say that management is not my deal. Actually, the, my least favorite part of what I do is managing other people. Right. I just, I just think yeah. human beings in general, <laughs> yeah. yeah, human yeah. beings in general are just yeah. difficult to manage. Right? We're emotional, sideways fast. we're insecure. Yeah, it's just like yep. all these things come up. It's like, that's why I love real estate because it doesn't get emotional and there is no real like, um, you know, you know, there's can be issues with the foundation of the plumbing, but they're not going to talk back to you. They're not going to call you in the yes. middle of the night. You know, it's it's just breaking <laughs> right. where I just, you know, but people are just, not like just that. Just your tenants will, right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, so I think it's just something that I, over time, I've just had to really look myself in the mirror and be intentional about analyzing, hey, what are the people that didn't work out? Why? What are the people that I'm drawn to? What are the people that I work best with? What are the kind of people that I want our company to be known for? And, uh, you know, so that's kind of where we came through. And I think just having those fundamentals and that foundation down, I think starting with yourself first, right? is just being self-aware and saying, here's what I do really well and here's what I don't. So let me hire someone that does that skill set really well, but yeah. is still like yes. high integrity and high energy, but maybe their, their intellect is in a different skill set than mine. But you just have to realize that. I think, first of all, you know, the first thing is, hey, what, what do I enjoy and what am I really good at? What's the highest and best use of my time? And then let me bring on people around me that are strong in those other areas. And then I think from there you can build on, okay, what are the next, you know, what's the next, what's the next area that we need? And what are the things that we didn't do well with that last hire? What are the things that, you know, and I think in every hire that doesn't work out, you can look at yourself and say, I could have done this better, Sure. but then we need this from the person, you know? And, and uh, so I think it was just a lot of trial and error over the course of a long time, you know? That's yeah. one thing that my brother's done in Des Moines really, really well is, just he's a great manager of people. Mm-hmm. You know, that's I think that's actually what he enjoys most. He's yeah. not as much about the deals and growth. He loves managing people. He nice. comes from a coaching background. Okay. Yep. And so he loves that. You know, he loves being able to coach people up, take them from, yeah. you know, a like let's say a six and bring them up and where they're playing at a nine. You know, yep. he really that gives him a lot of fulfillment. Whereas me, it brings me a lot of fulfillment just to get things done and see growth. Yeah. You know? And so being able to slow down, be intentional. But it's hard. I mean, there's we're not, and we're going to sit here in a year, and I'll say, man, I messed up on this in November. I messed up at this, and now I'm trying to get better at managing that. It'll never. I think it's one of those things where you're just constantly trying to improve. I mean, Chris, I know you're adding a lot. Yeah. I mean, what? Do you, yeah, it's, yeah, you're scaling too. <laughs> oh, I mean, Managing, you and yeah. I are definitely yeah. a lot of similar personality traits on there, and I agree. I think just you get the right people on the bus, and what you said a few cents ago, hire out your weaknesses. Right. <clears throat> like I'm really good at a few things. There's a lot I'm okay at. There's a few things that I am not good at or I don't enjoy. And I want to focus on the thing I'm really good at. I'm great at networking, deal analysis, financial modeling, creating opportunity, creating deal flow. When it comes to day-to-day deadlines, as everyone on my staff knows, our clients know, that's not my strength is dates and deadlines and, and, and contract details. Right. Just not my strength. But like my team, they're amazing. at They're great. So it's a great partnership in that sense. Yeah. I, I'm curious. I know it's been a while because I was rereading your chapter and I realized that uh, one of your goals was like 12 masterminds with me. Yeah. And it yeah. could have fallen off the last month or two. Oh. Um, have we? I thought we've been doing it every month. Are you sure? Uh, I'll double check. I think we've hit it every month. All right. Um, we have triple up. I'm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe, but I'm saying we've talked a lot about yeah. just like we've like gone through a business expansion right. and hiring. Uh, do you mind sharing kind of like what your org chart is? Because you've done, I think you've, I, I've met, you know, most of your employees or, you know, people yeah. are working on it, and I think they're just great people. Yeah. 
because I think it's been great the evolution has gone from single family to multifamily. Do you mind kind of sharing the, the roles you have and, and the high-level positions yeah. and roles they do? Because I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, and I think going back to the previous conversation about property management, you know, one of the decisions we made during COVID, which I think we'll see in the next couple of months if it was the right move. Yep. But we went away from, hey, let's build out our own property management company to let's build out a construction company. Yeah. And we really, you know, I think I kind of just woke up one morning and I was like, yeah, we just need to, I need to build out the infrastructure because I realized that I was spending a lot of time and energy on the constr- on in construction of Either in-house crews. You mean in-house crews, yeah. managing it, bidding it, the ICAs, the insurance. But you were also like, you would go from like a high level investor meeting, raising a million dollars, then you're running the Home Depot to pick up like paint and tile for a job site, right? I mean, like, and I was answering Home Depot calls yeah. like 20 times a day. Yeah. No, right. I've done all that. I got to take this really text confirmation yeah. to prove right. a Home Depot charge. <laughs> exactly. And so, what, and the reason I did that was I just trusted myself yeah. more than anyone. And there's yeah. so much, it's and yet you know, in construction, that's like the number one way to lose money on any yes. project is you can get so, you can get so upside down on a project if you do not manage every dollar in construction really quickly. I mean, you can get out of control. So that is why we did it, you know, is I was like, I'm going to manage, I have to be in control and I just would micromanage every piece of it. Yeah, well, and I don't know what you guys think about this, but I always had trepidation of taking on extra expense. You're right, you've got the one side of the coin that says nobody can do it as good as me, right. which we quickly are finding, right, if you hire A players, you can bridge that gap. That's right. Um, But I think we're in a fortunate business as real estate investors that people are making large chunks of money to hopefully say, okay, if I'm going to bring on a person to to hire, like you mentioned, your back office functions, Mm -hmm. your bookkeeping, your accounting, some of your office management, do you look at it as, okay, in your world, you have to do one more deal to pay for that person plus exponentially more? Or do you just look at it from a time capacity and say, "I'm, I'm swamped, I need to bring another person on? Or do you say, hey, it's you know, we got to pay this person yeah. 50 grand. And so I need to do one more deal. Talk yeah. a little bit about how you see that and like use that to your advantage. Yeah. Yes. No, that's a good, and this is part of, and to finish Chris's previous question, this is part of why I transitioned from funding every deal myself in our own company okay. and doing, you know, a lot of smaller deals in house, you know, cause you know, previous to this year, if I found a 10 unit that I liked, that was 1.5 million, I would basically make one phone call to a private lender I would take it down for one five, make a monthly payment. Mm-hmm. To, you know, I would bring the construction and then I would sell it in a year. So I wouldn't make any money basically until that day that I sold it. And then we'd make a lot of money. So there's no cash it's flow. Tough cash right? flow. It's yeah. tough, right? But it'd be a bit, you know, we'd have big chunks, we'd sure. big inflows, but it'd be few and far between. And and um, and so it's hard to build a team in that environment. Good point. Because you're negative, 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 yeah, right. and big positive, negative, 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 yeah. positive. Great point. And so you know, I had some really good mentors and they were, they came from an asset management or private equity background and they kind of took me under the wing and said, look, you have the foundation of a really good business. You know, you understand construction, you have these relationships, you can source a lot of opportunity. What you don't have is a business that you can yeah. scale. Yeah. Because it was basically just me and maybe one other person because any, anybody else you hire under that scenario is just increases your deficit every month, right? And so part of, syndications is that there's fees that are paid, right? So we get paid a property management fee. We get paid a development fee. We get paid an asset management fee. We get paid an acquisition fee. And we're still able to return a great return to our investors. I mean, we've averaged over 20 on all of our deals to our investors. So it's great for our investors. And then it's great for us because now we can build out a team because we have this income every month to hire people. And it's been amazing. You know, it's really been life-changing, actually. I mean, this year, I've been able to bring on some really talented people, build out a team, because I don't have to really worry about the, the income, because I know that it's coming in from the deals. You know, the, yeah. the, the projects that we're doing, you know, our investors are paying the company money to basically execute, to put their money to work. And so it's been a win-win. You know, I get to still deploy capital. Yep. I get to do more deals, be more diversified, instead of having every dollar in a few number of deals I can do a larger number of deals, spread out my capital over those, and then bring on people to help me execute the business plan, which in turn has made me just a better operator, I feel like, because we have, you know, so many things fall through the cracks when you're trying to wear so many hats. And now I have people that are, and like I talked about earlier, you know, now I have a full-time CFO that's trained, you know, has a master's in finance, you know, he's uh, fits the culture, you know, comes from the military. He's a great fit. He's great. He's been amazing. And then um, Brittany, 
is our office manager. She also runs our motel. Okay. We have a 95 unit motel that we're converting to apartments. And so in between the conversion, you know, why we're doing entitlements, she's managing that. She's also serving as a transaction coordinator. She can also like run to Home Depot or run to a project to check on something or make sure a delivery, you know, gets, you know, uh, is you know, gets into the project. Mm-hmm. You know, so she's you know, handling a lot of the operations. Side. She's handling a lot of the operations. And then we have a full-time construction manager that's on site. He, and I think he's more like quality control. So he's making sure the subs are showing up. Yep. And when they're doing the work, that it's done right. As you know, when you're doing 10 projects at a time or, tw- you know, whatever the number is, making sure that the tile is done correctly, the flooring is done correctly, the paint, the tech, and all those things, it really matters. And, and so, that's a full-time job. Full-time yeah, job. Easily. A full-time job when you're doing, you know, what we're the, what we're doing. And then behind the scenes, I brought on a project manager that is helping with budgeting. He's incredible with the numbers and the spreadsheets. He created all these systems in terms of like, to make it scalable, you know, to like, right. here's how much we're paying per square foot for this trade, this trade, you know, overseeing all of the paperwork with the contractors. You know, now that we're bringing on other people's money and we're fiduciaries, you know, we need to make sure we're protected. So making sure every contractor now has insurance, you know, all this stuff, all the minutiae yeah. that comes along with construction, there's so much and there's so many ways to get hurt. And obviously when, when I was buying a $400,000 house, my exposure was a lot less. And now when I'm buying a $5 million apartment building and putting $3 million into the renovation, now my exposure is a lot greater. Yeah. De- details matter a lot more. Details matter a lot more. And so what we've done is been able to shore those up by hiring people in those roles. And, and I've made a really conscious effort to focus on construction, you know, to really build out a construction company where we have systems and we operate I would guess, like, you know, I haven't worked for a construction company, but I would guess like a construction company. Sure. And to have those systems and processes in place. And I just really feel like that's an area where we're going to be able to create a lot more margin than property management. And that's why we went that way. I think property management is a low margin business, but it's great to control your asset. Mm -hmm. And and so, but we we feel like we've been able to find a good enough property manager where that's not really a pain point. But the construction, there, there is high margin in construction. Just saving 10 or 20% on materials versus hiring out a GC that's going to charge you the 10 or 20%. And then the well, labor- Which one's easier to outsource, property management or construction? It's PM, right? Well, property management is much easier. Yeah. yeah, construction is so, as you know, I mean, it's yeah. so difficult. And so I feel good about that right now. I think we're, we're really dialing in and, and getting better to where we can, you know, we're just building the foundation of, of a, a construction system that we can scale. And that's really the goal. Because I think that's where, where our niche is, is we take on projects that most people either don't have the capital or the patience to deal with. Well, and that's a great point. I don't know if you've come across this, but what, yeah, when you do that level jumping of when you really exponentially grow your business and you're talking to other investors and you're trying to tell them, hey, I want you to invest your money with me to buy a five to $10 million piece of property. I don't care how charismatic you are. And you are a charismatic dude. So Thanks, definitely man. don't take this the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. But I think they love to see that charisma with leadership coupled with a team to know, you're right, they can pull this whole thing right. off or that you can pull this yeah. whole thing off. Because if not, they're saying, how the heck am I going to deploy five million bucks with this guy? I don't care how good he is to do it on his own. Do you feel like people have been receptive to that and and said, you know, it'll help you grow your business, help you acquire more deals by building the team and then you get your time and sanity back too? Well, that's the number one thing is, you know, we have a 10-week-old son at home. Right. We have a two-year-old daughter. I have a wife that I really want to spend time with, yeah. you know, and I want to enjoy, you know, it's like you can get so busy doing deals. It's like people that maybe do half the number of deals I do, but they're having, they enjoy a better quality of life. And so I think that's a great point is, you know, hiring the people has allowed me to, I think, just become a better operator and a better fiduciary and as well as made me a better husband, a better father, and uh, I think a better leader, yeah. you know, in all those areas. I just feel much more balanced, you know, as opposed to like everything hinging on me you know, every single day. Now we have a team of people and if there's an issue and a fire they can't put out, they're calling me. And, and it's, yeah, it's, I think added much more margin right. to my my day-to-day, which in turn has helped me be able to look for more opportunity. You know, instead of every day just putting out fires, I think, I'm, you know, I'm still putting out fires. And I think as an entrepreneur, we always will be putting out fires. Right. But I get to balance that with brainstorming more, being more creative, trying to think about ways to improve, to grow, thinking about ways we can get better as opposed to just being reactionary every day and just reacting to fires that come up. And yep. so I, I think it's been received well. I mean, thus far we've closed on, I think four syndications this year and each one has been oversubscribed. So we're nice. really thankful. And and um, one of the concerns that has come up is how's the team? Who, if something happens to Terrence, who's gonna, mm-hmm. who's gonna run it? And, and I'm really thankful that we've been able to bring on the right people we're training them, and that if something were to happen to me, I feel really, I feel really confident that, you know, maybe maybe the team wouldn't be able to 
create as much opportunity, you know, because sure. that's that's harder to that's replace. Your sweet spot. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they wouldn't be able to create as much opportunity, but they'd be able to execute on the projects we have and and, and possibly do it better, you know, because they are more detailed, more thorough. And, uh, you know, when I was managing every aspect, you know, mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot falls through the cracks because you can only focus on so many things. So I do feel good about that. Obviously, we're just like everyone else. We're, we want to improve and there's areas right. that we need to get better at and we want to, but net uh, net, I think we're, we've, you know, we've, uh, we've grown a lot in those areas and we've brought on some good people. And so, yeah, I'm really excited. You know, nice. I'm excited to be able to execute more and do more projects and put our team to work and, and really, uh, you know, provide some great returns to our investors. And, and, uh, and that's really what it's all about, you know, is being able to, I want to be a good steward of my own capital. And then I want to be able to be a good steward of other people's capital and get them the best return possible. You yeah. know, and that's that's really what drives me right now. Well, and I think that, and I I feel like there's been a lot of personal development people that have used that you know four box matrix of working on the stuff. But I think it actually goes back to President Eisenhower of working on something that, that is important but not urgent. Right. And so if you don't have time or the headspace to do that because you're running around doing everything, then I think that you can only grow so much and you continually hit those ceilings. So I think yeah. it's just so cool to see. What was it, what was his uh, message? So so I believe, and I have to because I really go back like Eisenhower. So I've not heard him. Just yeah. I don't, I'm probably ripping this off from somebody else, but it's just get close. close. Just get close. Yeah, I'll, give, I'll give many people credit, and so that I won't get you know discredited. Um, but I know a lot of personal development people have done it, where you draw you know four boxes, and you've got the you know not important but urgent, which is just your general tasks and your busy work. And you're like, dang it, I have to get this done. Um, this is taking forever. Just get it off my plate. But you want to work and live in that top right quadrant, which is things that are important but they're not actually urgent. And that's where your strategy comes in. That's where your long-term thinking comes in. That's where you can see shifts in the market. And I think that's where you've done a great job is being able to build out that team and focus on that stuff, which in turn, you're right, you walk an investor through there and say, I am going to be a good steward over your money because I've got this headspace and this time and this infrastructure to work in multiple markets, work in multiple parts of town, do different asset classes. Um, So I think that's been really cool, you know, to kind of see from afar. And none of us have, you know, the, the right headspace to do that enough, I think. Yeah. But I think you've done a really good job of, of carving out time to do that. And I can just see it come through. Thanks, man. You know, yeah. the way you're running things. Yeah, well, it's been, yeah. you know, thanks to you. You know, you, you gave me that book, I think, a year ago. And that was definitely part of the process, you know, of trying to think about things the right way. And uh, Which book was that? Traction. Traction. Yeah. You mentioned that to me like five yeah, times. No, it's it's yeah. I, I still have it, it actually, so I could give it. I think it's going. Yeah, yeah, I going. I, oh, yeah. I was supposed to return it, so I, I'll bring it next time. No, yeah, no, no. Whoever Traction can get, more, yeah, get yeah. more use out of that. That one really yeah. definitely helps. I think people run either a small one or two person business, and I hear people that run, you know, 100 people businesses with that type of management philosophy. Yeah. And it's yeah. just straightforward, common sense, not overly complicated. And the funny thing about that is, is that I know you guys, you know, have gone to different good schools and, you know, I went and got my MBA and I felt like that traction business model, which narrows it down to a two-page business, is actually more efficient than what you learn in getting an MBA from time to time. So it's definitely Boom. big. That's my next book. Big, so, big thing to go. <laughs> during COVID, <laughs> while you go. college students are oh, not man. going to college or yes. paying a bunch of money right now, Rewind that clip 30 seconds I, because this is something we talk about a lot. I agree. Just yeah, chit chat. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I guys, totally we got to actually wrap up in about like five minutes or so. Like, I could like drink and talk to you guys for like this has been good. Hours. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We should probably plan that one day, yeah. but uh, we got some appointments, like appointments coming up. So, like, we have to wrap up here eventually. So, I know you got your checklist. I'll let you kind of wrap things up here because I, yeah. I enjoy sitting here. Drinking, listening to you guys chats. This is great. Well, I, I think it's <laughs> got a good seat. It, it is. It's this a good. Perfect. It's a good view from from I mean, where I you're at. Sports games right now. So right. this is uh, no. <laughs> this is it. Right. I I just really appreciate you guys inviting me on and being able to participate in this. And I think that what I would just end this whole thing on is I think we've talked a ton about great actionable items that people can use whether they're just starting out or whether they're scaling their business. Um, but talk a little bit about. Do you have a um, something that I think everybody can use as an individual? Do you have a morning routine? Do you have a morning ritual? Do you have something that you're like super dedicated about first thing in the day or at the end of the day that like keeps you sane, keeps you right. on, on track as we've hit all these great business things? Yeah. How do you lean that into your personal life knowing, like you said, you've got two little ones, which yeah. I know is, you know, can be a, lot a, a head full yeah. and, and you're That's right. The morning routine right there. Y- yeah. Good, good point. <laughs> I change a lot of diapers. Too much? Before yeah. 7 a.m. I've changed probably three or four diapers. Okay. That's the secret. That's the secret. Just yeah. change well, diapers. Change today, but we're we're at the twelve oh seven right two. now. I think I hit two this morning. Okay, I think, that's good. You know, one of the things that really helps me in coming from sports background, which I know you can relate to, is you know I love to work out, and I think even though I'm not going to the gym, you know I was able to find someone to work out with in the park, you nice. know, across the street from my house. Yeah, and me too. 
we hit that three or four times a week and it's been it's been awesome you know i think just to clear your head not have a phone on you enjoy the plugging for a few enjoy the outdoors yeah yeah i think breathing is really underrated Mm -hmm. you know i'm not joking i know that sounds sounds weird but i think the way you breathe is like really underrated and so i think that's that's obviously helped me a lot and uh i think you know having a really amazing wife that allows me to be high energy and you know kind of just want to go really hard every day you know has been been amazing for me and and then you know i think when you hold a newborn i think it kind of changes your perspective on life so that's been good for me yes so change day change diapers get a really good wife hold a newborn yeah whether it's yours or somebody else's and really focus on breathing yeah Yeah, you got to breathe that's cool and uh i think two books uh you know on top of traction for anyone that wants to read that have really helped me the last six months to a year is one the 2020 guy to Denver real estate investing? That is definitely one <laughs> of them. You should three chapters in that particular yes. that are mind Whoever DMs me and asks for that, we I got a couple copies that's we can right. send you. Uh, that's a great book. No, seriously. I think, uh, no, that was, that's, that's one of them, is uh, Ray Dalio Principles. Yeah, I agree. He's got some great stuff. I think he's one of the largest hedge fund managers in the world, and he's really big on transparency, communication, just really fundamental stuff. Even though he's a sharp guy, he's fundamental. And then the other one is... Sam Zell, am I being too subtle? Mm-hmm. For those that know Sam Zell, he's probably the, Who is that? the world's largest real estate investor. Visionary. He owns like mm. three or four of, you know, he started the whole REIT thing, but he owns more apartments, I think, than anyone in the country. He started buying apartments when he was 18 in Michigan and oh, wow, he kind of okay. started the whole REIT. He was the first guy that had yeah. a real estate REIT and now he has like a mobile home park REIT, uh, uh, apartment read, an office read, a retail, you know, he's- yeah. Are those he private is, or public? Do you know? Public. Oh, oh, yeah, public. Oh, okay. oh, yeah. yeah. Equity. Yeah, so- I think it's like equity residentials is that's the one that I've invested in is right. the uh, multifamily one. But his yeah, book is amazing. amazing. It's just a it's just a uh, autobiography on everything he's learned and done, and it's really a lot about fundamentals. You know, he talks about some real estate deals, but he's gone on to even trade like companies. You know, he took the same fundamentals he applied in real estate, and I just think that's a phenomenal book um, on everything that we've kind of highlighted. Yeah. You know, that, kind of goes over and just from his perspective on the real life stories, you know, and obviously he's adding a bunch of zeros to of his deals, but the principles are the same and the fundamentals are the same. And they I, that's are. what I really took from the book. And when he starts out, he's the same as many of us too. You, you can't just automatically typically jump into, you know, starting a REIT from right. scratch, but that's you right. got to, you know, earn your stripes and, and get there. So no, that's been great. Well, I've definitely checked all my uh, questions off. I know we're getting close to the end of time, but thank you so much. It's been super fun to this interview. And I thank both you guys for for asking me on. No, I always yeah, love talking Terrence. to you. Yeah, it was great. I really appreciate it. That was fun, Chris. Yeah, this, is, this has been great, guys. I enjoyed it. So both you guys did, did a great job. And quick reminder, you know, we're talking the 2020 guide to Denver real estate investing. Somehow it's already August of 2020. I mean, I Crazy. blinked. It was April 2020. Now we're in August. Um, at least we're out, not at home right now. Um, but we're going to be publishing a 2021 guide. So come November, we'll start accepting submissions. I know you two guys are definitely being here for the 2021 listeners out there. Write a chapter, check the show notes, uh, Google it. It's in the link somewhere. So Terrence, thank you. Derek, thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Boom. Thanks. That was great. Appreciate it. <laughs>